the To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. So we got some Ezekiel and a few letters from Peter and Paul. And so uh, we're picking up uh, in what is one of the two most kind of X-rated uh, segments of Ezekiel. Uh, you got to read both of them this week. Uh, and so, um, but God kind of comes in and reminds them like, hey, don't forget, you guys came from Canaanites and Hittites. Like you came from the pagan nations. Uh, like the only reason you're a, a separate people, don't think that you're this extra special, you came out of nowhere. Like I chose you and drew you out and now you are going back. You're, 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 you're sort of committing adultery back into these people and acting like uh, the, the, the pagans around you. And, and there's sort of this almost like idolatry nymphomania that's sort of presented in this text. Like um, there's no sense that, that there's sort of like rape happening. It, it is total by the volition of Israel presented here as sort of like the whore um, who is going after the, the gods and, and, and not only that, but even some of these political alliances that they're having uh, that they are going after. And, and it's sort of like, basically like, look, like God saying like, look, I took you out. Like you were this rejected beat up person like lying by the side of the road. And I, I dressed you up. I healed your wounds and I made you my bride. And now you're just going back to the people that rejected you and are willing to, to, to be available to all of them. Yeah. So it's like another form of kind of what we've already read in Hosea and a lot of the other prophets, but I do, I think there's just something so beautiful about the first few verses of this chapter, uh, where we see that there is nothing lovely or worthy about us, but the father set his love on us anyway. And because of that love set on us, it makes us beautiful and worth loving. And so sit in that truth, sit in the truth that who you are, your loveliness and your value is not dependent on, on what we do or what we accomplish or who we are, but on the fact that we are created and loved by God himself. And this really should liberate us as people. We don't have to earn his love. We don't have to earn his affection, but it is given to us freely because of who he is. Yep. Uh, and then uh, in the midst of one of these two chapters that feels like kind of calling out sort of the worst of the worst of Israel at this moment, um, the Lord kind of stops in, in the midst of it and just re- reaffirms his promise to Israel. Um, sort of like, look, I'm, I'm not going to give up my bride. And, like, and not only that, I'm going to up the ante. Like, well, I'm going to bring you back and I will set up this forever relationship with you. And so um, there's sort of just that promise in the midst of this. Yeah, it's kind of like God is saying, you've broken the marriage covenant in every single way. Everything I've given you, you've taken and you've used it and you've abused it and used it on others, but there's still a covenant that I made to you and I'm going to remember it. And this is the goodness and the default posture of our God. There is nothing they could have done that is worse or more violating than what we're reading here, but God did not forsake them. And God promises atonement in this passage even. And of course we see that in Jesus. Yep. And then we get the eagles and the vines. And, and so there's a couple of these sort of parables that we've come across uh, this this week. And uh, the first one, uh, and I would argue actually the, the parables that we inco- uh, come across this time are not the hardest to interpret. The first one, uh, Jehoiachin is probably this top of the tree that's taken away to Nebuchadnezzar, the sort of um, – and Nebuchadnezzar represents this like first eagle and Zedekiah becomes one planted by Nebuchadnezzar the, in, in Israel, but the branches go towards Babylon, like Zedekiah who pays tribute back to Babylon. But then the second eagle comes along, which is like Egypt and, and 
the Zedekiah, the vines start going towards this eagle instead. This is drawing the attention and Nebuchadnezzar, that first eagle is having none of it and destroys Zedekiah in the process. Like, and, and, and the Lord gets angry here, which feels a little weird, but, but Nebuchadnezzar had, had Zedekiah swear by the name of Yahweh that he would not break this treaty. And now Zedekiah is going ahead and breaking the treaty. And at some point the Lord's like, look, you broke this treaty. And like, my name is on the line in the midst of this treaty. Like this is part of Jeremiah's statement to them saying like, look, don't, don't rebel against Babylon. Like this is God's punishment and go forward with it. And the Lord's like to Zedekiah, you brought my name into this and you are defaming my name by breaking this treaty. Um, but, but in the midst of all that, God, once again, sort of interjects this little bit of promise and through the David's line, this shoot's going to grow out and it's going to become, it's going to grow so large that all the nations are ultimately going to be blessed by it and picks up on this language of the mustard seed as, as well. Yeah. So we see again in this, in this parable, the God's heart to bless and influence and impact all of the nations with his goodness, not just Israel. And he's going to do it through the Messiah. And then uh, we, we hear mention of a proverb, the, the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, which Jeremiah actually quotes that uh, qu- as well. So it must have been quite a popular proverb. But um, I think this whole chapter is really um, God dealing with people who are sitting there going, well, it's really our parents' fault. Like they were the wicked ones. We're being punished, maybe uh, even invoking ex- Exodus 20, where, where God says, I will I will visit their iniquities to three or four generations. And, and God, I think, is eventually saying, like, look, you don't, I don't want to hear that proverb. You don't get to play that card. The judgment on your parents was judged. Yeah, they were wicked, but you guys are wicked too. Your judgments have been earned too. Uh, you have not repented. So um, he, I don't want to hear. I'm holding you accountable for your sin. So repent. I appreciate how God weaves his hate for death into this passage or this section. And I think, again, this is why we need to be grateful for his justice because the sin of others brings about death and destruction. And this is why God punishes it and stops it. But he has no pleasure in the punishment and bringing um, and death. And so he's crying out to them to turn and live in union with him instead of bringing death upon themselves because they're bringing death onto others. And then we hear about a lion, which uh, had always historically had a, lo- a connection to Judah, uh, having these two sort of cubs, these two princes or kings. Uh, Ezekiel actually uses the term prince uh, sometimes for a king. Um, and so uh, the first one's dragged away to Egypt, uh, uh, which is something that happened to Jehoiaz in Second Kings 23, if you go back to Second Kings. And the second one is taken away to exile in Babylon, which is Jehoiachin, Second Kings 24. And the last, the, the sort of final one, um, really does become, for the history of Israel up to this day, other than Jesus being the king of kings, this becomes really the last political king of Israel in Zedekiah. And he's plucked out in fury, he's devastated and taken off into the wilderness. And, and the sort of statement here is that there's no more scepters, no more king upon throne from here on out, which will actually end up being true um, politically, at least for Israel. Yeah, which is going to stir our hearts to long for and to see the true king through Christ. And then similar to chapter 14, um, we have the elders come and say, look, I'm not, I'm not uh, kind of seeking uh, advice or prophecy from, from uh, Ezekiel here. And God says, look, I'm not just going to answer your request. And, and then God sort of takes them through a bit of their history from Egypt, uh, from the Exodus on. And, um, and he reminds them like, look, I've done these things for you. And every time you've rebelled and, and, and for the sake of my name, I've, I've kept a remnant or I've redeemed you every single time. Um, and, and he's going to get his job done of blessing the nations, but, uh, it's because of his name that he continues to save and save and save and save. 
Yeah. So it sounds like they're, you know, they're keeping like, well, this, this is going to keep us from punishment or God will punish us for this or whatever. And God here is saying, it's not your history that delivered you, but uh, their glorious history was not anything they accomplished or how they behaved, but it was the grace of God. And we see God, and we're going to continue to see it as we read this, put an emphasis on the idea of Sabbath here. Uh, here, Ezekiel talks about it. Sabbath as being something that sanctifies and a sign between the people and God and a promise by which people will know the Lord. And so it's a reminder for us that Sabbath is a, is a sign forever. And so it's something that we are invited to practice as well. Yeah. Yeah. Just that reminder. Like we've been through this for like millennia and, and we've been down this road before, but, but God's saying like, we, there's still a road. I'm not turning around and forsaking you and saying, forget all about it. Like I'll, I will bring you back to this land. Like it's just kind of a reminder, but, but, but the invitation to repent, like I'm going to purify, I'm going to judge, but I desire for you to repent and I desire to be re, uh, for you to be restored. And then the end of chapter 20, um, I think should bleed over into 21 where there's sort of this introduction of Ezekiel saying like the Lord's going to burn the land from the South to the North. And then everybody's like, Ezekiel, we don't understand what you're talking about. Uh, and so, uh, chapter 21 sort of starts explaining it with the sword. It's like, well, if you didn't understand the burning of the land, let's talk about Jerusalem and a sword, (laughs) which is as clear as you can possibly get. And, and sort of the, the portrayal here of sort of the judgment and uh, even Ezekiel having to act like he's in pain and, and a reminder to the people like, look, like this is going to be painful when you hear about what's actually going to happen. It's going to be painful, your reaction to that. And, and then there's sort of a a second article where it's like that previous punishment with a rod that maybe it was like a wood stick or a paddle, like it didn't get your attention. And so I'm bringing a more devastating, I'm bringing a sharpened new sword and, and this is going to get your attention. Like this is going to be so much worse and so much deeper destruction. And then he makes like a little map of how to basically invade Jerusalem and, and the Babylonian Kings would have been like doing divination and all these other things ultimately to think about how to attack. And, and Ezekiel, God saying to Ezekiel, okay, just tell Nebuchadnezzar how to get in, like make it as plain and as clear as you possibly. Like God wants this ultimately to, to happen so straightforward that he's giving Nebuchadnezzar through Ezekiel, like here's the plan on how to destroy this town. Um, and not only that, but there'll be judgment upon the Ammonites and Ammon as well, who likely if, if, if Babylon ultimately comes from the South, which is where Ammon is, um, have either allowed Nebuchadnezzar to go in kind of un, un, untouched or un, 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 uh, fought against, or is even fighting alongside Nebuchadnezzar. So Ammon's going to get punished for that too. Verse 27 of chapter 21 says, A ruin, a ruin, ruin I will make it. This also shall be until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs, and I will give it to him. And so this is a passage again that we read that points us to Jesus, the one who will own all of the judgment, and God will pour it fully on to Christ, who will pay the price for our sins and the wrath that should be on us. And then, uh, but immediately, so we just get all these article oracles of how God's going to destroy. And then God, God stops almost to be like, let me remind you why all these things are ha- from chapter 21 are happening. Yeah. And so it's like you, Jerusalem is a city of blood. There's, there's lawlessness, there's violence, there's taking advantage of others. There's high places, idol worship, rape, incest, bribes. There's so many different things that are listed. And it's like, look, th- there's doom, but there's reasons why like this judgment is not haphazard. 
it's it's because so much brokenness has has taken over my people um and then he uses this metaphor of like a a, a silver being refined um and usually when when that's being talked about it's sort of like the sanctification process and it's usually about like through suffering we become i mean paul paul uses these sort of metaphors like through suffering we become more um, trusting in God and sort of like there's, there's always the the burning way of the impurities. But in this one, the metaphor is like at the end of the day, there's only dross left over. There's only the stuff to be thrown away. And so God's saying like, look, I'm going to refine you like silver and there's going to be nothing left as soon as you're done. And then, um, and then there's sort of a direct attack on the leadership, the prophets, the priests, the princes, like they're all shady at this point. They're all oppressing the poor and needy. They're extorting, uh, extorting the sojourner, all this kind of stuff's going on. And God's like, I can't find anyone. Like I'm looking for someone righteous and I have found none in the city. Yeah. He wants to find someone to cry out, to stand in the breach for Israel. Um, and that is not yet though. Of course it points to a future King. Yep. And then uh, this chapter 23 kind of feels very similar to Ezekiel 16, as the sort of um, the, the whoredom of Israel, uh, just done through the story of two sisters, uh, which really ultimately represent the North and South Kingdom. Uh, the first one um, is plays plays games with the Assyrians, uh, and uh, the alliance there is kind of represented as this, this whoring uh, that the North and the Assyrians, and she chooses her this adultery. She chooses to go after uh, the Assyrians. And, um, and then we find out the South, the other sister, is even more corrupt after this who courted the Assyrians, but ultimately the Babylonians become the, the, the ones who she willfully goes to bed with. She willfully uh, whores after as the language sort of portrays itself. Uh, and there's rich images all over just, and, and they're really kind of X-rated in how they're presented. But um, there's even like the picture of like, Oh, you dolled yourself up like, like with, with scents and oils and stuff like that. But you were using the incense and the oil set apart for God's worship in the temple. And so like God's even portraying that, like you dolled yourself up for this sexual encounter and you use the objects of worship to do it. And so God turns away and disgust in both situations to the North and the South. Um, and, and he's sort of like, look, I'm going to let them devastate you and, and you're going to be, you're, you're going to be so ugly. No one's going to even want you anymore. This, this, it's just hard for me to read. It just feels heavy reading about judgment and wrath and reconciling that with a loving God. And I've talked about this before, and I'm probably not the only one who's feeling it. But I think one of the benefits to understanding with the imagery and the language and the constant reiteration of sin is that then again, we can jump to the New Testament and think that this is what God had in mind when we read that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I know I sometimes, and probably many of us sometimes, minimize the extent of our sin, but this sort of description that we read, I think really emphasizes how gross and ugly and horrible and wicked and sickening sin is. And so when we understand that we need to be cleansed from that kind of a sin, it will make us appreciate the sacrifice of Christ in a different way. And so we spent 23 chapters of Ezekiel really giving this message to the the, the people in captivity that look, Jerusalem's going to be ransacked. The, the sort of final judgment of Israel is not quite done yet. And then this chapter becomes like the, the final sort of siege of Jerusalem. Uh, and so it uh, becomes a bit of a transition and sort of this picture of this rusty cauldron in some ways. And uh, I would argue that the cauldron's God's land and the problem's really what's inside the pot. And at, at first there's good things, kind of choice cuts kind of thrown in. And maybe that's David, maybe it's the temple and sort of worship the, the initial things that really happen. But at this point, everything's corrupt and, and the good pieces have been taken 
taken out and what's left is only worthy of really being burnt up. And so, um, yeah, and there's, there's a few Leviticus callbacks and stuff like that too. The blood on the ground, like which in Leviticus, you're like not allowed to reuse the blood. You actually have to put dirt on top of it. And so there's all these little hints and callbacks to, to, to some of those moments and I'm not going to parse all those out, but, but there's some good, if you really want to go back to it this week to last week, um, you can, you can kind of look at, all right, what, what might, what might Ezekiel be saying there? Hmm, yeah. And then we find out Ezekiel's wife is going to die in the process too. And he's instructed not to visibly or auditorily mourn in sort of the very customary manners that people do it. Um, and there's definitely, as you read that, like, Oh, that feels so harsh, but mm-hmm. God is also driving home a point. Like they've lost the people have lost Jerusalem. They've lost the temple and God has taken away like his dwelling place and, and his, his, his pride amongst his people, like at least for now. And, and sort of there's this breach of relationship. There's this loss, but, but God's also like, but this was right. And this was, this ends up being just and, and yes, you, you are lost, but this isn't a moment to, to totally mourn that. It's a moment to recognize like, this is what was coming. This is what was promised. This is what we deserved. We, we shouldn't act like this, this wasn't, it was unnatural. This is exactly what has been spoken of. And then Ezekiel finally gets to speak. And we'll kind of watch him, I think, change tone a little bit. I think he takes more of a pastoral role from the rest of the letter. He's a shepherd. He's a watchman. He talks about the judgment of Babylon. There's sort of a, a, a little bit of a more hopeful tone, I would argue, even though we'll talk about judgments. But for Israel, that's hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't have anything else to say about that. It's hard. It's just a heavy, hard part to read. Yes. And so uh, let's jump to the very end of First Timothy, uh, where Timothy is reminded that there's false teachers and to look out for them. Uh, they're specialized in controversy and quarrels. They utilize their religion to help make money. And um, I, I think in our modern day, there's a lot of money to be made through books and podcasts right now, uh, dabbling in controversy and, and things like that. And so um, be wary uh, that that there's a whole industry that exists out there uh, in, in the Christian book world and the Christian podcast world uh, where people will um, espouse the controversy because that's a living. There's a living to be had off that. And so uh, be wary, uh, just like Timothy had to be wary. And, and these leaders um, who are willing to bend truth for the love of money seduces them away from God. Yeah, so Paul really emphasizes two very tempting areas that lead to many people falling away. And so he's telling Timothy to be on watch and then telling his churches to be on watch. And the first is doctrine that slowly slips away from truth. And this is evidenced by those who are pursuing controversy and friction. And, you know, think of our current religious and social environment. Uh, And the second, of course, is pursuit of financial gain. Paul commands us to be content with our food and with the clothing he's giving us. And both of these feel so both of these warnings just feel so completely relevant to us in our modern society. Yeah. And he's told to fight the good fight, something he kind of told him back in chapter one, keep at this. So uh, I would argue this, this sort of timid Timothy can need to keep reminded, like stay in it, Timothy, keep going. You're, you're called to this. Um, and, and that, uh, to take hold, I like the phrase, take hold of eternal life. Like this temporary life is caught up in riches and, cowards and in the face of persecution and suffering and self-seeking, but eternal life, like it's riches in heaven. And you can stand up to, to pilot like Jesus does. Like it's a life that lays down the self for the things of God. And so Timothy go after those things and, and Jesus will bring us into the presence of the father and no one's ever been able to see, but that's what Jesus is going to do. And then sort of this random kind of come back around to, to this conversation about the wealthy in that statement too, at the end there where and, and Timothy in this well-to-do church, I mean, we got to remember Ephesus was a extremely wealthy city in the ancient world. And so, um, 
A reminder, once again, like the wealthy, like don't teach them not to rely on their wealth. Like may their being rich in wealth turn into being rich in good works. Like there's sort of like a parallel drawn there mm-hmm. and, and sort of this, this Paul draws out this monetary idea and to keep going where like Timothy guard this deposit, this godly deposit put in you. So don't be straight, Timothy, stay on course. Yeah, it's interesting that in the same section, Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. He tells him to flee controversy. And so that comes in sometimes directly against our plan of like being the Christian coalition who enters into these controversies and engages them. And Paul is saying here, flee it. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't engage some of those discussions. But he's saying flee it and flee the pursuit of wealth and focus on holding fast to sound doctrine and knowing and submitting to God and being rich in good works. And that's how people are going to know the gospel. So some final thoughts. So I really like the personal nature of this letter. And as someone who works for a church, I really appreciated the practicals of general church operation. I think the last section we covered today really sparked something in me of how entirely relevant it is to our modern society. Living as a Christian feels more and more abnormal every day. But this book, especially with its emphasis on godliness, shows us more what it looks like to be kind of in the world and not of the world. Yeah, as a pastor, I always really appreciate the pastoral letters to begin with, sort of the encouragement, keep teaching sound doctrine in the face of false teaching and keep enduring and remember the calling that you have on your life and call people to ways that are countercultural, pursue godly leadership and in, in those around you. And so, I mean, that's an ongoing struggle and, and it's a f- fight constantly. And so um, that, that sort of encouragement, particularly to Timothy, very much applies. I think a lot of pastors tend to get a, a little bit... Um, uh, the word of encouragement passed on from Timothy into uh, our own personal lives. And so mm-hmm. uh, I do appreciate that part of the letter. So Titus, um, this the only other time we ever really hear about Titus uh, is actually in the book of Galatians where Paul recounts um, going to the Jerusalem council and he took Titus with him as like evidence. He's like, here's my piece of evidence I'm going to present in my argument of a Gentile who's uncircumcised, but yet has the Holy spirit. And so, um, this is sort of, uh, likely that same guy. Um, and he's, uh, ministering in Crete. Uh, Crete is, um, it's an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, kind of a, a pathway between the middle, e- uh, the middle East and, um, probably more Rome, uh, and some of Greece. And so, uh, as a pathway, uh, kind of in between the two and a major port, um, it's full of sailors and sailors and probably pirate type people, mercenaries, folks like that. Um, the pretty gruff and rough people, uh, in the city and Crete has a reputa- reputation as so, um, and not only that, but Crete also has a lot of influence from Zeus. Uh, this is, they, they, they call the birthplace of Zeus. There's a, the, the psycho cave that exists there. And so Zeus worship was much more common. Um, but Zeus is deceptive. He's a bit of a liar and he's a seducer. And so, uh, there's some of that, uh, that will have to be, um, kind of dealt with a little bit in some of the language that Titus uses. Um, and so Titus deals with some of that synchronism of, of the, the personality, the culture of the Cretans and how we are now called, uh, in, in a different way and a different way to live. And so, um, all that's going to be kind of covered in this letter. Yeah, it's cool to read Titus right after First Timothy because Paul gives similar instructions, but he contextualizes them differently to the people in Ephesus versus the people in Crete. But ultimately, his what he's looking at here in Titus is this link between faith and practice. What we believe affects our behavior. And Paul's missionary strategy here is not a culture war or to get people to assimilate, but to participate in the culture around them as different people. Yeah, and right away, Paul sort of, 
does that Zeus versus the God I'm, I'm talking about, uh, like the real God who does not lie. He's faithful. He's true. All this language that's like mm-hmm. so much different than how Zeus is portrayed and understood in sort of the ancient context. Yeah. So he starts out by talking about something that directly comes against some founded beliefs or strongholds in the Cretan culture. And it just made me kind of wonder if Paul were to write a letter to us, what he would say and what how he would define God's characteristics. But we see that that Christianity and the truth of God and his character uh, can enter in with truth into any and every culture, which is very different than other religions around us even today. So Paul says, hey, Titus, I left you behind to bring some structure to these churches, to bring some leadership to appoint leaders who, once again, in a very non-Cretan way, their integrity, self-control, generosity, devoted to Jesus, and, and to replace some of the corrupt leadership that exists here. And he identifies the, the corrupt leadership that's sort of similar to Galatians, sort of these Judaizers who are saying, hey, if you're Greek, you need to obey the Mosaic law to be part of Yahweh's people. And um, Paul doesn't get into the theological arguments, likely because Titus already knows them all. Um, but Paul and instead uh, employs like a philosophy quote from Cretan's own philosophers. And he sort of points to these teachers who have financial gain. They're teaching people the wrong way. He's basically like, you know how Cretans have the reputations of being liars and gluttons. Well, these false teachers are basically those guys. And, and he sort of not only that, but they claim to, to know God, but they deny him by how they actually live. And so um, sort of this, this condemnation of these false teachers here. So we see Paul here urging Titus to be extremely, extremely clear about true doctrine versus false doctrine. And my guess is that the church in Crete had blurred some lines that should have been blacked and white around uh, what truth was and salvation and stuff. And I think it's really easy in our culture to neglect true doctrine as well, because our culture does, even around things like absolute truth. So while we do have gray areas in scripture and as we interpret things, there are also some areas that are black and white, and it's important for us to be able to distinguish the difference between what's gray and what's black and white. Yeah. And, and then the next title sort of teach. It's, it's labeled in the SV as teach sound doctrine, but it's almost like teach, teach orthopraxy, teach you how this actually mm-hmm. starts playing out in your homes. Because, uh, the, the deal here is, is, is Paul saying like, look, like you, you, you can't be this one thing and then live this other way. And in so doing, you discredit the message you, you, uh, in verse five is sort of this discredit. And then verse 10, like, so, so live a way that credits the message in verse 10. And so don't be people that can bring accusations of evil and, and all this. And, and a lot of this is actually teaching people to be self-controlled. It's, it's a phrase that Paul uses multiple times in the section because the Cretans themselves are probably not They're They're given into alcohol and sexuality, and all these other areas. Um, and so and then there's sort of a lot of talk about just about the house household in general, that elderly, that the older, the men, the women be exemplary towards the younger, young women create stable households and healthy households. Young men are contributors, especially uh, healthy citizens and societies, and even, even instructions for, for servants or slaves and, and how they may have a gospel egalitarian view of brothers and sisters, but don't let that contribute to like a slave rebellion and accusations that can be brought against the Christians as well. Like Paul's very concerned about the public witness of the church mm-hmm. in ways that they are to be distinct from the Cretan way of life and the way that doesn't bear any sort of false witness or accusation against the church. Um, the way that they're honoring of people, they're generous. Um, and, and, and Paul, just like in Timothy, like points to the gospel's motivation here too, that Jesus gave up his power and position for the sake of others and salvation. So now you do that same thing too. Like that is distinct from the self-seeking, non-self-controlled way of life of the Cretans. Like, you be zealous, but be zealous towards God. Like that's fine. And, but live a distinct life, live one that is self-sacrificing because that's the picture of Jesus. 
I love this section. And I love that when we are living from truth and from sound doctrine, our lives, both inside the home and outside the home, are going to look different. And this means that our neighbors and our family and our coworkers are going to notice. They'll remark that you live in a different way than the others around you. So whether you're a retiree or raising kids or somewhere in between, um, the world will see you practicing a way of living that is different than them. It doesn't mean you're not going to the same stores or the same parks, the neighborhood cookouts, but your life is going to look different when you are moved and changed and impacted by the gospel and by doctrine. Yeah. And it keeps pouring over into chapter three that they uh, should live out these lives as examples, obedient citizens, generous people. But then Paul sort of gets all poetic in the Greek there um, to talk about sort of the spirit empoweredness of this. It's like, we do this because of what the the spirit and Mm -hmm. what Jesus has done. It it gets very Trinitarian almost in it. Um, And and because of God's kindness and love, God saved us. He washed us. Rebirth renewal is the work of the spirit. It's empowered us to be new people, which was through Jesus's work who, who declared us righteous. And so this whole section becomes this really good identification of what the gospel does on our behalf. And so um, he's reminding them of that. Like you can do all this because of what the spirit has done because of your position, the work of Jesus, all of it together. Yeah. He's encouraging them to remember who they were before Christ and then who remember whose you are and who you belong to. Now that you know, Christ being filled with the Holy spirit, good works will flow out of us as we walk in the spirit. So he's saying, don't criticize, don't speak evil of others or argue or go way too deep into the weeds, but be gentle and courteous to all people. And you should do this without grace and without condom or with grace and without condemnation, because you have to remember that you used to be the same as these people you're serving now. Yeah. And Paul's going to send some reinforcement or two for Titus and he tells him to say hello to a few friends and then kind of wraps up his letter. Yep. So any sort of final thoughts or reflections on Titus? So I enjoy thinking about how countercultural Christian or how countercultural the Christian life really is. I think we really don't need to do that much as believers that will make us stand out in the world around us. And a big piece of it seems to me, at least what stood out to me this time, is how we speak to and about others. When we speak in kindness about minor inconveniences or even big things, whether it's political leaders or difficult coworkers, the world around us is going to notice us by the language we use. So I want to be filled with the Spirit, and I want to understand the grace of God in my life in such a way that. I don't say unkind or divisive words about anyone. Yeah. And I, I really like, as you point out, kind of reading Timothy and Titus right next to each other. And I mean, written about the same time as these two different protégés, they're disciples of Paul. And um, one includes almost like this tender encouragement to Timothy, this, this reminder of call. And, and to Titus, it's like, here are my commands to you, go do this. And um, it's very different in tone and, and even personality. And, and there's a slight balance in both of sort of the the culture, how to be in the culture, but not of the culture and, and how to dance in, in that in some ways yet both have very different contexts like for the wealthy Ephesians it's generosity and things like that to the crass Cretans it's temperance and self-control and not retreat um, so there's there's great works out there that are written like how um, like Christ and culture by Richard Niebuhr and others and it asks all that like how much do we remove ourselves from culture how much do we engage and uh, I think both letters and particularly Titus does a lot of that of like like don't don't disappear like be good citizens be involved in the world around you yet live distinct lives. And so mm-hmm. um, that is so central, as Sarah has already said. And so Second uh, Peter, uh, in a lot of ways, is, uh, and, and there's all sorts of debates on authorship and timing, but um, 
if we're putting Peter's name on here, Peter, it's Peter's farewell letter in a way. It's uh, likely his last letter to be written. Um, and it deals a lot more, uh, I would argue, uh, where the first letter might have had a little more orthodoxy, a little bit more of like the, the right understanding of who God is. Uh, this letter seems to be a little more an orthopraxy, like, all right, here's now how to live out how you believe, because it deals with foods and feasts, it deals with sexuality, power, wealth, influence, and, and false teachers. And, and it seems like they're not disputing Jesus himself, but teaching people wrong behaviors and, and sort of working out the gospel. And so um, he's going to deal with that, particularly in chapters two and three, which you didn't re- read this week, but uh, you'll deal with that next week. Yeah, we're going to kind of read Peter's farewell letter, his farewell speech, which emphasizes what really matters, you know, never stop growing in Christ and don't be led astray by bad lives or bad theology. So his opening greeting uh, and includes the line like, to those who have obtained a faith on equal standing as ours by the righteousness of Jesus. Like, I I love sort of this opening, like Peter's not presenting himself as super apostle. He's not trying to put himself in a different class. He actually opens up to remind them, like, all of our faith has caused us to be equal before God. Like, there's no, like, that is the wonder of, of the good news. It's not only are we all broken in sort of the same category, but we are all redeemed in the same category. Uh, there's no super Christian, and even more so in a, in a Greek context to understand that there's not a distinction there. Yeah. So think about the Christians that you look up to, whether it's somebody you know personally or whether it's authors or speakers or whatever. And remember that they are not more Christian or more super Christian than you are. Um, Or think of the person who you feel like is the worst Christian. They are not less Christian than you are. We all have equal standing before God because of Christ. Yeah. And and in chapter one, one of the books we used to use a lot uh, around here, or I used to use a lot in discipleship is a book called gospel Center discipleship by Bob Thune. And he really focuses on this opening chapter. And one of the things he points out is like, look, like God, God, I mean, Peter's already made this incredible statement to say like, look, you can have like uh, participate in the divine nature. And he points out all these things like virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness, brotherly love, all these things that are wholly set apart, uh, kind of obedience things that, that we uh, are to live out. But he also kind of Peter makes this pivot. It's like, like if you're struggling, if you're failing, if you're not living into those things, it's not pull up your bootstraps and try harder. Peter there suddenly goes, it's because you forgot that you were already cleansed by Jesus's blood. And so Peter's solution to ungodliness in this section right away is to remember your identity. Remember what Jesus has already done. Look mm-hmm. to Jesus's work on the cross. Then we'll talk about practicing these things. And I think it becomes such an interesting, like, because he starts talking about behavior, but then he reminds people like, look, the gospel is a starting point to the behavior conversation. I love that he says God has given us all things that we need for life and godliness. So when you need something, when you are longing for something, for me, it's often patience. Ask God for it and then read this passage over and over again and remember that it is already ours in Christ. In the Psalm 104, it's a lot of talk of creation. Yeah, I think we see God creating and providing for all of the earth and then even commanding and ruling the spiritual beings we cannot see. So surely if we can trust him to do all these things, we can trust him to provide and care for us. In Psalm 128, all about blessings. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely principle and not prescriptive, but there is blessing for those who fear the Lord. Yeah, and and a lot will say that it was uh, likely written when they returned to uh, Israel after the captivity. Sort of that, may you bless, uh, may the Lord bless you from Zion. May we see prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. That sort of mm-hmm. like return, like let's let's say a blessing over our city. And then yeah. Psalm one twenty five. Yeah, trust the Lord, and your future is sure. Yeah, and and God protects His people. Uh, next week. 
So in Ezekiel, I know you're going to be surprised at this, but we're going to be reading lots of laments and judgments again. They're going to feel or will likely feel heavy and redundant depending on what kind of Bible reader you are. Uh, But it's going to end at least next week with Ezekiel 33 and God makes a statement again about how he feels about the death of the wicked. So pay attention to that and spend some time trying to reconcile the death and the judgment we're reading about with God's response to how he feels about that those deaths. And in the New Testament, Peter talks about the day of the Lord and God's patience about when God's going to bring it about. So how should this understanding impact the way that we live our lives and even anticipate or pray for Christ's return? Think about that. Yeah. uh, As as I said, I I, I tend to interpret, uh, everybody has different structures, but I tend to interpret like 24 becomes a a hinge chapter in in Ezekiel because... um, it's important to remember for 24 chapters, we have heard about destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of Jerusalem. And that's really it. And now we're going to hear God's actually going to have judgment upon these other nations who have been awful and other groups that have just been awful. And, and it's sort of like um, a pivot here. And so um, even though the next few chapters are foreboding and there's a lot of judgment, a lot of devastation, all these sorts of things, um, pay attention to who's, who all is being spoken of. And if you are someone who's sitting in captivity, who's wondering where the justice of God is, who's wondering, like, is there any hope left? What is God going to do? Does God even care about us? Does God even deal with other people who acted wickedly? Like, yes, we might have acted wickedly, but Babylon and Assyria and all these other groups acted terribly as well. Like, these words might actually be words that are meant to be encouragement for God's people. And then the New Testament, if you're like a Bible highlighter or something like that, um, as, as, as uh, Peter's writing, uh, try, try to notice, or Paul's writing uh, in second Timothy here. Um, like there's, there's multiple statements where it's because Jesus has blank, I now blank. And, and there's almost like set up in multiple sentences, this idea of like Jesus did this. Now I get to do that. And Jesus was this and I get that. And so, um, try, try to find those connections because I, I think it really helps understand sort of like set up a multiple arguments in this book. And that's it. Thanks, Thanks everybody. Y'all.